Well, Jesus Christ, you will command the highest praise. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And so Jesus Christ, we declare your lordship over this church right now. We declare your authority over this church right now. And Father, help us to listen and respond and to hear and to declare the word of the Lord that has all authority and to humble ourselves under that authority. You have spoken. You are the Lord. Jesus, only Jesus is the Lord over all. And we lift up your name and I pray right now we'd be so humbled and so eager to come under your word and say, Jesus, you are the Lord and I'm choosing right now to humble myself under you because you're the Lord of my life and I'm not. What you say goes. And so I pray right now, God, you would be pleased to dwell among your people. And God, we, you would move in this place, Holy Spirit, with such conviction and refreshment and encouragement and power and break us of ourselves that we would say, Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. Guard my mouth and say what you want to say to your church. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. And we declare that today in the name of Jesus Christ church if you agree say amen amen you may be seated you may be seated well let's open up our bibles to john chapter 5 john chapter 5 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9 if you do not have a copy of god's word put up your hand the ushers are coming forward right now we want to put a copy of god's word in your lap so you can continue to follow along we're going to go verse by verse line by line through chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. And it's on page 519 in those Bibles that are being handed out for you. Well, it's always a great day when we get together in the house of the Lord, but what makes this day unique as well is um, we start our second series of the year. And this is a big series, as all are, but this is a big series, and it's called The Gospel of John, Part 2. Life in the Son. And we're going to be taking from now until just before Easter, so strap in. We're going to be going verse by verse, line by line, through John chapters 5 to 7. This is the second section in the book of John. And you may say, well, wait a second. You're like, why, why part two? What happened to part one? Well, if you want to get caught up, because many people weren't here, uh, we did part one from last fall into the new year of this year. Call, it was called The Word Became Flesh, and it was based on the first section of John, which was chapters one to four. So all you got to do this week, it's real simple to catch up, all you got to do this week is go back and listen to the 18 messages so you're ready for Sunday. All right? And so you want to be caught up, go back and listen to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And the purpose of this series goes right in our theme for the year is just this. To be rooted, built up, and established in the true gospel. To be rooted, built up, and established in the true gospel. Some of you, I don't know where you're coming from. There's a lot of people here. But we say this. What is the gospel? It's just the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just the person and work of Jesus Christ. All right, and so we're going to be unpacking that. And so the, John wrote that book, this book, the gospel of John, for this purpose. So let's get some context to refresh of who's this guy, John, and what's this book all about? John wrote this gospel between 80 and 90 A.D. 80 and 90 A.D., it's about 50 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay? So still in the first century. And it's a few years, he wrote the Gospel of John a few years before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. Same guy writing that. Okay? So it's a few years before that. Now John was one of the most, was three of the most intimate disciples with Christ. So Jesus had his 12 disciples and then he had an inner circle of three men, Peter, James, and John, that he spent more time with and pouring into them. And so as such, John is an eyewitness. He's an eyewitness 
Imagine this. Imagine if you, you ever want to be John? You get to be a front row seat eyewitness to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, including his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. John's an eyewitness to all of this. And so you're going to notice something here. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called the synoptic Gospels. They're synthesized. And so you're going to see a lot of the same uh, history that is being unpacked in those of Jesus' life and, and ministry. John didn't write the book of John to be the fourth synoptic Gospel. He wrote the book to complement and supplement the three synoptics. And so that's why it has a different feel. You're going to be hearing things throughout this book that aren't mentioned, including today's miracle at Bethesda. It's not mentioned in the other Gospels. He's filling in the details. And here's the other thing as to why it's so different, because John focuses his Gospel on the last three years of Jesus' life. From 30 until 33. That's why there's no Christmas story mentioned in the Gospel of John. He skips all of that and moves right to John the Baptist, declaring just right after Jesus' baptism. Okay, so you don't get that background that the synoptics have, and that's why John was writing. That's the purpose of it. So why would John write it this way then? What is his purpose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Why would God put this in? Here's why. It's to be both an evangelistic book declaring the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ, but it's also to be an apologetic defense of the gospel. Love that. You think that's needed in our day? You think about that? You think it's needed? Yeah. You think, you think the Holy Spirit knew what was going to come? It's the 21st century church? Yeah. And so it's an apologetic defense of the gospel that defends the person and work of Jesus Christ. And its purpose, love this, is to remind believers of who Jesus is and stir their hearts to continue to abide in him daily in his power. And so let's break it down. Let's get some people caught up that weren't here. You'll see. Theme. The section one, as I said, was chapters one to four. And that's what we went through last year. And the theme of that whole section, if I could break it down, would be this. Jesus revealed. Jesus revealed as the Messiah. And we see this in John chapter one where it says, and the word became flesh. John one. You'll see it on the screen. The introduction of Christ. Okay? The word became flesh. Right out of that extended prologue of the first 18 verses. And then in chapter 1, we were introduced to Jesus' second cousin, John the Baptist, who isn't the Apostle John, by the way. This John, he wore camel hair, and he ate bugs and honey. Man, I would love to hang a day with John. You want to hang a day with John the Baptist? Praise the Lord. So here he is eating out. Here, try this one. This is really good. It's really crunchy. No, thanks, John. Like, that's amazing. And so here he is, the second cousin of Jesus, but more importantly, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was declaring Jesus as the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we're in the introduction of Christ was coming. Then you hit chapters, chapter 2. And this was the start of Jesus' public ministry. And how did he start it out? With turning the water into wine at Cana. That was the first of seven signs in this book. That's why John chapter 2 all the way to John chapter 12 is called the book of signs. Because there's seven signs that Jesus does to declare and authenticate who he is. More on that in a moment. So this is the start of the public ministry, water into wine. He goes into the temple, cleanses the temple of the money changers. And then you hit chapters 3 and 4. And this is where Jesus' public teaching starts to happen. Where he teaches Nicodemus that you must be born again. And then he goes in John 4 to Samaria to sit down with the woman at the well and teaches her about rivers of living water. Okay, and how true life is found in him alone and what true worship is, and then he finishes chapter four with the healing of the official son. Love that. And that purpose, sign number two, was to show that true life was found in Christ alone. And then that brings us to part two of the book of John. And if I could summarize part one that said Jesus revealed as Messiah, the summary of part two would be this, Jesus rejected as Messiah. As he continually reveals his lordship, 
People don't like that. Hey, wait a second. I think we live in a day. Wouldn't you say that kind of describes our society today? As Jesus reveals his lordship, people are like, we don't want you as Lord. We don't believe you as Lord. You're a heretic. You're a liar. That's the problem we see today. And here's the thing. The rejection of Jesus as Messiah wasn't just come. We tend to think it's all on the religious leaders. It wasn't just the religious leaders. It was those claiming to follow him too. We'll get to John 6, Lord willing, where they say, this is a hard word. Who can hear it? If this is what it means to follow you, I'm out. If this is what it means to take up my cross, I'm history. So this is not only the religious leaders rejecting. This is those who claim to follow him. That describes our day in a nutshell. And the problem that is highlighted through this section is that we see around us today, would you agree with me? We live in a section two culture. Right there. Jesus rejected as Messiah. We live in a section two culture that is increasingly rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ as the one true God who has all authority and who is the only savior of the world. Would you agree with me? There's many ways to heaven. Believe whatever you want. You're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And the result is this. Just look, just look around us. Look at the result of what happens. The result is it's leading to compromise and rejection of the true gospel at a staggering pace. In and outside of the church today, in the lives of individual people, and even, just like we're going to get to, Lord willing, in chapter 6, even in the lives of those who claim to follow Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christ follower, but he's not my Lord. He's not Lord over this area of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do here. I'm going to be the Lord. Something else is going to be the Lord. Money is going to be my Lord. Power is going to be my Lord. Sex is going to be my Lord. Welcome to the Section 2 culture. And the result is there's increasing false teaching in the church of what the true gospel is. Deception is rising. And souls are hanging in the balance. And here's the thing that needs to burden our heart more than anything else. People are going to hell every single day, never having heard the true gospel or have believed it. Imagine being in a so-called church your whole life and never hearing the true gospel, thinking you were saved. Does that break your heart? This is why John writes the book. And so here... In our text today, section two starts off with a third sign. This is sign number three, that Jesus performs by healing the lame man of Bethesda. And what we have to understand, I love how section two starts with this, because this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. The turning point, now hostility kicks up against him. As soon as he does this, and we're, that's why I've divided it into two sections. So this is part one today and part two next week about this sign. Because we're going to see, this is the turning point where now people were wondering, is Jesus really who he says he is? And now when he declares it, he's like, all right, it's full on opposition against you. This is the turning point right here. And it marks the beginning of that open hostility. And here's the other thing. This isn't found in any of their gospels, as I said. So let's, let's dive into this. And, but, but before we do that, we have to get some clarity. How many of us have ever asked God for a sign? Anyone? Be, don't be shy. This is church. Did you ever ask God for a sign? Yeah, totally. But we have to be clear on not only why God does signs, but what, what is the purpose for those things and how are they to impact our lives? So the clarity of a purpose of sign of God, if I could sum it up, it'd be right here. Signs from God, write this down. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God and are done for his glory alone. Let me say that again. Signs from God, when Jesus performs a sign, they are always meant to point us back to him, who he is, and they are done for his glory. Not the glory of this man that's gonna be healed today. Not the glory of you and me. For the glory of Christ alone. They are to show us something more about his character and his nature, whether it's his authority, sovereignty, power, lordship, whatever. Jesus is doing them to show those people something more about himself. In fact, the Greek word that John uses for sign all throughout this book is this. You'll see it on the screen. Say my on. 
Semion. It means to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate who? The one giving it. They are meant to point us back that Jesus is who he says he is. And here's a display of that. All right. In fact, this is the very purpose of the book of John, summed up in one statement. You see it right here, John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Oh man, I would love to find out what those were. That's amazing. But they're not written in this book, but these are written. The ones that we have are written so that you may, why? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. A sign from God. And so the purpose of this specific sign, the healing of Bethesda, was to confirm Christ's deity as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and show that he is Lord over all. He is the one with complete authority. He has all power. He has all dominion. He has all sovereignty, even over sickness and death itself. It's a sign of lordship. And so here in our text, we're going to see two crucial truths that we must embrace, loved ones. These are just non-negotiable. We must embrace if we are to believe that Jesus is the Lord of all, and if we are to live our lives under his lordship. You guys ready? I'm, I'm excited. You guys ready to go? Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word, and we will read John 5, 1 to 9 this morning. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. You just imagine that? 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Hear the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first truth that we are confronted with in verses 1 to 7 of this text is this. Jesus reveals his lordship, number one, through his mercy. He sees and knows me. Someone needs to be comforted with that in this house today. He sees and knows me. And the question we're confronted with from this section of the text is this. Jesus sees me in my situation. Will I put my faith in him? Jesus sees me in my situation. Will I put my faith in him alone? Okay, so these first five verses are setting the stage for what is about to happen. And notice in verse one, it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So remember, after this, go back to chapter four, the last part. Jesus has been in Cana where he has just recently healed, sign number two, performed a healing on the official's son. So let's get a map of where we are. So he's up there in Cana, and then down here in Jerusalem. That's about a 100-kilometer walk, by the way. That's amazing. It's not like Jesus could call an Uber, right? He's walking 100K, and he's going. So why would he walk 100 kilometers to Jerusalem? Well, you see it in the text. Read the text. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus goes up. Well, wait a second. What, what feast is this? We don't know what feast it was, but it was one of the big five. One of the big five. Pentecost, Purim, Hanukkah, which is the new year, Feast of Tabernacles. What was the other one? 
you know, Pentecost, Purim, Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, Passover. Of course, how do you forget the Passover, right? So it's one of the big five. Now, why that is so important is because this. When you had one of these big five festivals that they still celebrate every year, by the way, over in Israel, every male 12 years and older would take up, in the entire nation, would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate it, to worship there on behalf of their families. So according to scholars at this time, there were about between 800,000 and a million guys packing Jerusalem. There's like 800,000 or a million men cramming into Jerusalem. And in verse 2, look what it says there. Keep reading the text. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now wait a second. Here's what's happening. In one part of the city of Jerusalem, there's a gate called the sheep gate whereby people would enter the city. So here, you see this picture of Jerusalem. So you see, here's why it's so significant. There's 800,000 to a million guys packed in because it's a walled city. It's not like you have room to spread out. Everybody's walled in together. And the pool of Bethesda at the top of the screen there is just by the sheep gate. And it's in the northeast corner of the wall. And they had different gates for people to enter at different places. I love how specific scripture is. Amen? So good. There's nothing to hide. It's the truth. And so Jerusalem is surrounded by these walls, and near the gate, we're told, there's a pool. You see it right there. The pool of Bethesda. Pool means reservoir. And it had five roofed colonnades, which are covered porches around it. And Bethesda, you know what's so cool? Don't read ahead in the text. Wait for this. It's called the House of Mercy. House of Mercy. That is significant. Right? Five roof colonnades or porches, and then where we see in verse 3, in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Invalids is just another term for one who is incapacitated with sickness or disease. And we see the types of diseases. They're blind, they're lame, that means they're paralyzed, they can't walk, they can't move. And they're, and they're paralyzed, which means they're withered with disease. It's just crippling their body. And they're hanging out in these colonnades. Now, why do the invalids, why do the sick people here, why do they gather in this place? Because people, this was a place of superstition. People superstitiously believed that the pool had the power to heal them. It's called the house of mercy. It had the power to cure illness. And you see here on these roof colonnades, here's the pool of Bethesda. These were twin pools. It's not like a little pit in the ground. Each pool was 100 yards wide, 20 feet deep, 100 yards wide, and you see the five colonnades. This is an archaeological mock-up of what it looked like, just right in the corner of the sheep gate there. And so you've got first colonnade in front of us, one on each side, one, two, three, far colonnade, and then the partition in the middle, most likely, they think, to separate the men from the women. So you've got five colonnades, and they're all hanging out, waiting. Now, we'll see why in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. Oh, wait a second. Where's verse 4? You have a verse 4? If you have a KJV Bible, you'll have a verse 4. I don't have a verse 4. Wait, what happened in verse... Finally, there you go. I love seeing your heads in the text. That's great. Keep going. This is why we bring our Bibles, loved ones. There's no verse 4. What's going on? Well, first off, here's what I'm going to say. It's okay. The authority of Scripture is not at stake. The inerrancy of Scripture, not at stake. The sufficiency of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, not at stake. It's okay. Calm down. We're good. All right? We're good. It's not in there because some consider, some scholars consider that verse 4 was a later addition to the scriptural manuscripts. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And therefore, it's not in the most accurate manuscripts. Okay? So verse 4 wasn't added in on the earliest and most original manuscripts. If you have an older translation of the Bible, like I said, the KGV... You're going to have a verse 4 in. Why? 
because the KGV is based off a later manuscript translation. It's not based off the earliest ones. And so it's based off a later one, so they've added verse 4. But what scholars, here's, here's the thing we have to understand. What scholars have discovered is that for the first 400 years of church history, there was no verse 4. In all of the manuscripts that were written, there's no verse 4 there. Okay? But now, in 460 AD, all of a sudden, verse 4 pops up in a manuscript edition. What's going on there? Well, what happened is an early scribe or translator was walking through the text and he made a little margin note. We're going to read what he wrote. We're going to read a little margin note that he made just to give some context about what's going on. It doesn't alter the truth whatsoever. It's just like a color commentary that a scribe added in the margin and then in later manuscripts they just assumed it was verse 4. And look what it does. Look what it does. You see at the bottom, you see that little subnote on your little, little in, your, in the text there? You see a number beside? And go down to the bottom of your page, you'll see verse 4. Here's what they believe. Waiting for the moving of the water. So they thought they'd been lame, paralyzed. One man, he was waiting for the moving of the water. And then the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. Does that change the truth of anything? No. It's a comment meant to give context, and it helps explains verse 7. If you go down to verse 7, it said, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And everyone goes, Ah, now I know why. He just adds some context. They believed an angel would come down, and so you had all of these sick people around these colonnades just watching the water. When's it going to stir? When's it going to stir? And as soon as it does, that must be the angel. i got to jump in. Because the first one in gets healed, according to superstition. Okay? So he just does that to add, add some context, but it's not in the original manuscript, so it's helpful to understand verse 7, but it's not in the original, so we don't count that in the original script. Now watch this, verse five, let's move to verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So we're starting to focus on one specific sick person at the pool. A man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, unable to walk, he's lying there. Now what we have to understand, okay, when you read your Bibles, loved ones, here we go. Bible reading 101, discipleship. When you read your Bible and you pick up a text, you're like, why would God, why would the Holy Spirit make that mention that he was 38 years old? Why provide that detail? There's nothing out of place in God's word. He did everything, every word's inspired, so every word is important. And you look, why? Because here's why. 38 years was older than most people lived in those days. They didn't have the medicine we have. They didn't have that stuff the average lifespan was less than 38 years. And so to say this guy's 38 years old, he's, John is emphasizing this to show the hopelessness of this man's situation. This guy is hopeless. He's beyond a cure for any man-made initiative. It's not like he could go to the doctor and say, well, Jesus, the pill could have done that for him and that medicine over there. Mm-mm. Healing had to come through another way if he's going to be healed. And look at verse 6. Look at this moment. The master of mercy walks into the house of mercy. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, imagine this, he walks up to him, sees that man in a room full, do you want to be healed? After 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Jesus walks in to the house of mercy. He sees this man in his trial. He sees this man in his hopeless state. And here's the thing. Notice that word. He knew. Circle the word see and knew. In that verse. The word knew there. It's not like Jesus walks into the 
to the Bethsaida pool, he taps someone on the shoulder. Hey, tell me a little bit about that guy. How long has he been here? What's his deal? Mm-mm. He didn't talk to anybody. It means to know intimately. It's a sign of Jesus' omniscience as Lord. Fearfully and wonderfully creating each person and knowing them better than they know themselves and how that situation is impacting them. He saw and he knew. Hey, loved one, I don't know where you're at today, but eyes up right here, right here. Jesus sees you and he knows you. He sees and he knows. He knew how long he'd been in that state. Complete knowledge, omniscience, sovereignty, intimacy, and by his mercy. Let me ask you a question. Did this man do anything to deserve this? Yes or no? Was it because he was such a righteous elite? This man didn't do anything. This was all an act of Christ's mercy. He goes up to him and asks, do you want to be healed? Now here's the other thing. That word healed in the Greek means this, to be made whole. Jesus is looking at this man and saying, you think this is all about physical healing. There's some greater healing that needs to happen here, your spiritual healing. Do you want to be made whole? And look at how the guy responds. You could tell after 30, imagine, put yourself in the guy's shoes. After 38 years of frustration and hurt and rejection, people not helping him get to the pool, just caring about themselves, leaving him broken and paralyzed. After 38 years, you see some of this hardness come out in verse 7. The sick man answered him. He doesn't even answer Jesus' question. He says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. He starts making excuses right here. Don't we do the same thing? Yeah, I'd get better, but I got no one to put me in the pool. When the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps in before me. You hear the crustiness, the grouchiness, the hurt, the pain, the hardness. No one's coming to help me. I'm all alone. I just want you to picture this. Here's a picture of what's going on. Here's this man crippled, unable to walk. Don't miss this moment. And the master of mercy walks in. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? You know what Jesus is saying here? He says, hey, I know your tears. I know. I know what you've cried when no one's been around. I know you're hurt when you have to try to package yourself together, but under that, I see right through that facade. I know you're hurt. I know your pain better than you do. I created you. I know the struggle in the waiting. Will today be the day that I get put in the pool? Could I maybe get that today? Could I be made? He goes, I know that. I know every tear you've cried. And in my word, I say, I've caught every one of them and put them in a bottle. I remember every sigh you've ever made. I see you in your hurt and disappointment. I see you when others reject you. I've heard every complaint that you've made because you're trying to fulfill yourself and be made whole with things that can't do it, putting your hope in things that are false. I see your fear. What's going to happen to me? How much longer can I go? Like, will anyone care that I'm gone? What's going to happen? I know that. I know your anxiety better than you do, loved one. I know that hopelessness that you're feeling, that things will never change. I see it. I know the rejection you feel, and I'm still asking you the question right here. Do you want to be healed? 38 years of brokenness is healed instantly in the presence of the king.
Do you want to be healed? Jesus says the same thing to us today. He says, loved ones, let me exhort you in this. Jesus sees your situation and he knows you intimately in it. But will you put your faith in him? This is what he's asking this man and asking you and I today. I don't, and loved ones, there's a lot of people in this room. I I don't know what you're all going through individually. Some of you I do. But I don't know what you're going through. But based on the truth of God's word, I know what Christ is saying to you. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be healed? He says, you can try making excuses. You can keep making excuses as to why you're not getting anywhere, why, why you have that gnawing feeling that something's missing. You can keep making excuses for that. He says, you can keep putting your faith in other people. Notice what the man does in verse seven. Look at, does this not describe, this is like this character sketch of our heart, verse seven. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. He's putting his faith in other people. He says, if they could just carry me into the pool, then I'd be okay. Don't you and I do the same thing? Is this you this morning? If, if that person would just meet my expectations, I'd be fulfilled. I'd be content. I'd be satisfied. If that person would just come and say, I've hurt you, forgive me, please, then I'd be satisfied. Wait, depending on other people for our healing, for our wholeness, it's not going to happen. If that person would only do this, then I'd be content. Then I wouldn't be anxious. Then I wouldn't be fearful. He's making excuses. Well, it's dependent on people. Is that you this morning? Is that me? Eyes off the Savior, eyes on others to meet the needs that only Christ can. Or this one. If I would just get more of the praise of man, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd feel content. Then I'll feel fulfilled when everyone's cheering my name and saying, great job, yeah, you. The fear of man is a snare, loved ones, Proverbs says, but those who trust in the Lord are safe. People would just recognize me, then I'd be, really? That's what he's saying right here. Or this, maybe for some of these things that we're putting our faith in, not Christ, says this, he goes, you can keep putting your faith in other things to deliver you. Notice verse seven, what he says. Now he moves from people now to things. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. Now he's depending on the water for healing. He's depending on the things now. It's off people appeasing him and doing what he wants and now it's on the pool. If I could just get into the pool, what's your pool? What's your Bethesda right now? Maybe for our students in this room, if I just get high enough grades, then I'll be content, then I'll be satisfied. There's my Bethesda pool, and I'm just watching the water. I'm just watching it stir, just waiting. Maybe now I'll get it. Maybe now I'll be fulfilled. But that next test comes, and it's not fulfilling. And then the next one comes, and it's not fulfilling. You're like, maybe now. Maybe now. And you're just watching the pool for it to stir. Maybe that's you, your grades, maybe, maybe for us it's our job. If I just climb that next rung of the ladder, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be made whole. If I just get that next position, then I'll be fulfilled. And just watching for the stirring of the water. Maybe for some of us it's money. If I just have more, then I'll be secure. If I get this, and it's possessions, cars, houses, stuff, all of it. If I just get that, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be able to serve the Lord. Then I'll look to Christ. Really? You're watching the water, loved one. You're watching the water. Maybe some of this. If I just get a husband or a wife... 
Then I'll be content. Then I'll, that'll somehow be fulfilling me. Or some of us who have that, like if I just have kids, then I'll be fulfilled. Listen, loved ones, I love my kids. We have four boys and a fifth baby on the way. But the reality is this. That will crush you, that expectation. To think, now we're going to have kids. And we'll put, and they'll fulfill us. And we'll be all happy and we'll be all satisfied. That's a lie. I love my kids, but don't put that on them, and you're going to get steamrolled by that expectation. Probably on the way home from the hospital, (laughs) when you can't get the car seat working. That's the reality. Maybe if I just get a spouse, if I just get a husband, if I just get this, then I won't feel so, then I won't. You're watching the pool. You're watching the pool, or corporately as a church, we got to watch this. We got to watch this. We say, if we just had our own building, then everything would be okay. If we just had more staff and could take some more rest and delegate things, if we just had this, then we'd be okay. You're watching the pool. We got to be careful of that. If we just had more volunteers, if we just this, if we just, how about this? I'm pretty sure this church would be really in a good place if we just had more of the Lordship of Jesus in it. What do you think? individually in our lives, in our families, and corporately as a church, I think we'd be just fine meeting in a gym. Don't you? He says, you can keep trying to look at those things, other things, they're not going to fulfill you. Stop staring at pools and start staring at the Savior. Or thirdly, you see this, other people, other things, and now look, he says, Jesus says, you can keep trying to put your faith in yourself to try to get you out of the situation. Look at verse seven. Go back to verse seven. The man says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool, people. When the water stirred up, things. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Who's he relying on himself there? Oh, I just gave it away. Who's he relying on there? He's relying on himself. He's relying on himself. I gotta crawl to the pool. I gotta crawl. If I can just crawl ahead and do this. And then he sees that person, that guy right there, Dive past him and get in there. And there's a crushing defeat. Because that's what happens when you and I rely on ourselves. We will always let ourselves down. Always. And we're crawling to the pool. How many of us here this morning, we're just trying to crawl to the pool. If I could just do this and work harder at this. If I could just get that. If I could just do this. If I could just. And you're trying to crawl to the pool depending on yourself. But Jesus says none of that will help you. Loved ones, you can try those things. I can try those things. But the reality is you and I are going to be in the same spot, depending on the same things that won't deliver us and will leave us at the edge of the pool looking on unfulfilled. Every time, you and I will end up at the edge of the pool. Looking on unfulfilled. Why? Because what you and I are ultimately longing for Jesus says is right here. But do you want to be healed? Do you want me? Or do you want your own way? Your own stuff? Your own strength? Do you want me? Stop staring at the water, loved one, and start staring in the eyes of your Savior, who is Lord. And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I fix my eyes on, put my faith in Christ and come under his authority? He says, through abiding in his word, get in front of his word every day. Draw near to him in prayer, personal worship, corporate worship, through repentance. Maybe there's an area of sin in your life, complaining, you just need to repent of right now. And Jesus is like, do you want to be healed? I can't bless you with that right there. That has to go. Do you want that? Or do you want me? Humil- walking with humility and surrender. Question, where do you need to stop staring at the pool, loved ones? And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your first step to getting off the floor is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and believing who he says that he is the Lord of all. Fully God and fully man. And he came to earth and he lived a perfect life for 33 years and died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And he died 
and was buried for three days and rose again, defeating the penalty of sin and death for all time, defeating the destructiveness of sin, the impact of sin, and the eternality of sin in hell for all time. And today, he asks you the question, you don't got to clean yourself up. This guy didn't have to clean anything up. Jesus went up to him and he says, do you want to be well? You won't find it in the pool. You won't find it in others. You won't find it in yourself. You will find it in me because I am the Lord. Jesus reveals his lordship through his mercy. He sees and knows me. What pool do you need to stop staring at? And as we turn from all other things and we turn our gaze, just like this man, eyes off the pool, eyes on the Savior, and we turn to him, he reveals his lordship to us lastly through this, through his power. Through his power, he speaks and delivers me. He speaks and delivers me. And the question we are confronted with in these last two verses is this. God's power flows through God's word. Will I trust in him alone? God's power flows through God's word. Will I trust him? And I'll look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him in response, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Notice he didn't even entertain his excuses. He's like, get up, take up your bed, and walk. In verse 9, and look at this moment. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. You see, after hearing the excuses the man was making, Jesus looks past all of it. And by his mercy, he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Take up your bed. What's he talking about? Well, these people would have um, uh, little straw mats that they could easily transport. And so they'd roll up, and whoever was carrying them would put them over his shoulder. He says, take up your mat. You know why? You're not going to need it anymore. That thing you've been depending on, hey, guess what? You don't need that. Amen. Roll up your mat, the straw mat. You don't need that. And notice in verse 9 what it says at the very start. At once. At once. Instantly, when Jesus spoke his word, the man was healed and restored. And notice this. The man hadn't even got up off the ground yet, and he was already healed. He says, at once, Jesus spoke, and this man was healed. This man took up his bed and walked for the first time in 38 years, what had been enslaving him in hopelessness and fear and depression and anxiety for 38 years was gone when the Lord spoke. No more competition with others. You can stop trying to get ahead. You can stop trying to push your name forward and get to the pool. No more of that competition. No more striving to get ahead of everyone else in the pool because the Lord of all spoke and he was delivered. Question, last question today is this. God's power flows through God's word. Will you trust in him alone? And I want to give some clarity here. This isn't some word of faith movement. There's nothing in this guy's heart that had faith at this time. We'll see that in part two. So it's not like, if I just believe hard enough and do the right things, then Jesus will, listen, God's deliverance for you and I, it might not be giving you a kids and a spouse or giving you a promotion or healing your sickness in the moment. You say, okay, great. So I read God's word and I'm sick. No. God can do that. But it may not end up that way. You might not get healed of your sickness on this side of eternity. If you're in Christ, that healing's coming, praise the Lord. When we are with him in heaven. Those things, these things may happen, but in all these things, remember this. Christ has something much greater for you and I that enables us to receive these things that he allows into our lives. The frustration, the discouragement, the hurt. And here's the thing that we get. Ready? Ready? We get more than the deliverance from those things. We get him. We get his presence. We get his joy. We get his peace. We get his faith. We know his love. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus promises that as we draw near to him through his word each day and we humble ourselves. Do you actually want, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be increasingly delivered from what's crippling you? Do you want that? And we humble ourselves under his word in obedience to him, no matter our circumstance. Here's the cool thing. God's word will prove true. His word will prove true. 
and we will see his power and deliverance increasingly as he transforms us. The power of that sin that was nagging you, that pornography, that fear, that anxiety, it may take a long time, but we get something much greater. We get more of him, and he increasingly delivers us from that as we're transformed into his image, wholeness, healing, and fulfillment. If I could sum up this text, it'd be this. To be whole, to be whole is to be made like Christ. There it is. We are increasingly made whole when we are increasingly like him by his power at work in us. He speaks, we deliver. So what's your next step? What's your next step? Maybe for some of you, it's like, I gotta get in God's word. Great news, we've got a full stack of God Time 101 books back there to start your devotional reading. There's reading plans back there. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I'm in God's word every day. Go deeper, grab a journal. Start writing out one of the verses you're reading and then offer a prayer back up to the Lord. Go deeper with it and ask him in prayer for a greater hunger for him. John 3.30, Lord Jesus Christ, you must increase, I must decrease. Maybe for some of us to go deeper with the Lord and see his deliverance increasingly, we need to repent of that sin we're just going back to that we think is going to superstitiously deliver us and heal us. Maybe we need to repent of that right now, that area of disobedience and walk in faith. Because here's why. Jesus Christ is the Lord over all and has revealed it through his mercy and his power. Question for today. Loved one, eyes up here. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And will you turn to him? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I thank you for the hope of this word today. God, refresh us in this truth right now that no one is here by an accident. No one here. You have brought them here because you see them right where they're at and you know them. You know the pain that is bringing tears to their eyes every day. You know the hurt that they're bringing in here today. You know the joy that they may be in here with today. You know the struggle. You know the missed expectations. You know the rejection. You know the striving for other things, and yet you ask us, do you want to be healed? Because you're merciful and loving, and your steadfast love never fails. And as Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect, and the word of the Lord will prove true. But will we humble ourselves under it today and turn to you? Because no matter what comes in this life, no matter the brokenness, no matter how long we've been in that, we can stop making excuses today. And we can say, great are you, Lord. Great are you over my circumstance. Great are you over my fear. Great are you over my anxiety and my hurt and my pain and the crippling effects of my sin. Great are you, Lord. I want to be healed. I want to be made whole in you, Jesus. Lead me into all truth. Your way is perfect. It will prove true. You speak and bring deliverance. Give me faith to trust you again. Because great are you, Lord, and worthy to be praised. So shall I set my eyes and heart on you again. May that be the posture of our heart right now. And would you minister to us so deeply as we come together to sing this last song to declare that truth. In Jesus' name we pray.